Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have you ever thought about mediums and thought uh, that's legit, that seems like something someone can do, or it's a complete scam? Well, my next guest has spent a lot of time looking into this. Steve Taylor is a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and joins me on the line now. Good morning to you. Great to be with you. This is a rather interesting interesting subject. subject. And before we get into some some of the questions and how to really know what we're talking talking about about what exactly exactly is a medium a medium is a person who claims to be able to contact uh, the spirits of deceased individuals and to relay information uh, from them and is this something that it's kind of always been around or do we know how this all kind of started or was there a first medium well, it, it began to, it became popular. Mediumship became well known to, towards the latter part of the 19th century. And investigators began, began to examine people who claimed to be mediums. But I guess, you know, people always claim to, you know, in, in, in previous centuries, even previous millennia, people would always claim to be able to communicate with deceased ancestors. So I guess in that sense, it's always been around. So uh, there would be a lot of skeptics and uh, people thinking, well, this doesn't really seem all that legit. How do you know that somebody is actually a medium and, and, and that is what is happening? Well, I used to be very skeptical myself. And I, and I think that a lot of uh, people who claim to be mediums are fraudulent. You know, So I think you know, if you go down the high street in any city uh, in, in England, it's quite popular to have mediums in, in public houses who hold sessions in, in public houses and they claim to be able to give people information. And I think some, some mediums are definitely fraudulent, but that doesn't mean that all of them are. I think there are a certain percentage of mediums who are genuine and they've been investigated under very strict scientific conditions and they've been found to, you know, to, be, to be genuine. A, a couple of examples uh, I was looking into, uh, and I know that, that you have studied and looked at. So one involves a chess game, which I found rather uh, very interesting. A Robert Rollins, who organized a chess match between a deceased grandmaster and a living grandmaster. And, and did that kind of help? Was that an example of showing there was nothing really else to explain it? He had to be legit? Yeah, it, it was for me. This is one of the cases which I think is incredibly convincing. And, you know, anybody who looks into this case in detail will find it very difficult to explain away in in terms of any other factors. So yeah, certainly for me, it was a very interesting and significant case. So what about this case do you think then shows that this is a legit, this is not a fraud? Well, the medium uh, claimed to make contact with a deceased grandmaster. And there was a a Russian grandmaster who was living at that time called Viktor Korchnoi, who was interested in parapsychology. So he agreed to to, to play this uh, chess, this deceased grandmaster through the medium. And the game lasted for 48 um, 48 moves. And the moves of the guy, the the deceased grandmaster was called Maroxi. And his moves were analyzed by chess, other chess grandmasters or by chess experts. 
And they all found that his game was at a par with a grandmaster level. And they all found that the moves of the deceased Maroxi were very similar to the actual Maroxi. At the time, he was the third best player in the world. And bearing in mind that the medium himself didn't play chess. And even if he did, you know, you, you wouldn't expect him to play at the level of a grandmaster. Um, so the game was examined by Bobby Fischer, who was one of the most famous chess players of, the 90, of that time. And he, he agreed that the moves were, 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 were at a grandmaster level. And also they, they, they were slightly antiqu- antiquated, slightly old-fashioned, because Maroxi was a, a grandmaster in the 19th century. So, yes, it's very significant. And it's very difficult to explain this case in any other way than, you know, than that the medium did really have contact with this deceased grandmaster. Hmm. Would that then lead you to believe that if, if that really is the case, that, that he was the medium for this chess grandmaster, uh, you could perform a surgery. You could do things that in your life you can't do at all. But if you're a medium, you can then do them? In theory, yeah, I mean, chess is a very precise, uh, precise game, so the, the information needs to be very specific. So in theory, that would be possible. I mean, no, nothing like that has ever been, you know, has ever been claimed. But in theory, you know, you, you could, a medium could, uh, you know, relay very specific information in order to perform very specific tasks. So with these examples where there's there's no other explanation and the chess game is a great one where there's no other explanation perhaps as to how this would happen does it lead you then to to know why some people are are mediums and and some aren't or what's actually happening there well, you know, it is very difficult to explain away and a skeptic would find it very difficult to believe that some people are able to to contact or communicate with deceased people. But I think that that is the only explanation. I mean, I used to be skeptical about the idea of life after death, but evidence like this convinces me that there may be some form of life after death. And as I say, there have also been very specific, very scientific experiments performed with high level mediums, which have had very positive results. So for me, I am am completely open-minded, you know, um, and I I, I do believe in the idea that it is possible to make contact with deceased individuals. So in effect, I believe in life after death based Hmm. on this evidence. When you say some kind of life after death, though, are you talking about, uh, and to use the chess example, the the grandmaster of chess is is, uh, hovering above and and controlling this person, or it's an energy or something else that's, that's kind of inexplicable? It's very difficult. To, it's very difficult to comprehend, but 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 there does seem to be a very real possibility that we we retain our individuality at least for a certain amount of time after we die in the physical sense. So yeah, in a sense, this grandmaster does still exist in some realm or some domain that we can't understand or that we can't have access to in our normal state. Hmm. And and so do do you find then? Even like you said, you yourself, you were a skeptic at one point. When when you have more and more evidence and cases like this, is it kind of winning over the skeptics or at least opening people's minds to the possibility? I think so. Yeah, I think more academics are becoming open to the possibility of some form of life after death, not just based on mediumship, but also evidence. There's a lot of evidence from reincarnation. There are many cases of young children who report very specific details of, of claimed previous lives. And investigators have examined them in great detail and found that, you know, the information is too specific to be to be fraudulent or to be guesswork. So, the, yeah, and there's also lots of instances of after death communications, which is when people claim to have made contact with people who, who they've lost, deceased loved ones. So the, there's actually a lot of different kinds of evidence from different sources. Hmm. And are you continuing to look at this or study this or, or what would you like to look into more or kind of what questions does this raise for you? 
Well, I mean, I, I collect examples of what are called after-death communications, and it's actually 70% of people who lose, uh, who lose their loved ones or people close to them claim to have made contact with them in some form, whether it's through hearing their voices, through s smelling very specific things, or, or whether it's a, a kind of a vision of them, perhaps in a dream. And, and, in, and in some cases, the, the deceased individuals, they relay specific information, they give people warnings, uh, you know, all of which is later found out to be true. So, yeah, so my particular avenue of research is these after-death communications. It is very, very interesting. Uh, Dr. Taylor, we'll leave it there for today, though. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time once again to check in with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Lots happening when we talk about wildfires and what's going to be happening today and air quality. And you and I touched on this yesterday on whether or not there has been theft going on when it comes to firefighting equipment that is being placed in some areas in the North Shoe Swap. But what, what is your take kind of on, on what is happening there? It is a complicated and kind of interesting backstory to what sounded like you know, kind of dastardly theft in the press conference with the premier and his ministers yesterday. You had three cabinet ministers and BC wildfire people all coming out saying things like, hey, stop stealing equipment, stop moving equipment, stop running supplies to people who are staying behind, uh, quit endangering people's lives by staying behind, like this, this full court press. And you're kind of sitting here on the outside thinking, wow, what is going on up there? You got a bunch of like teens running around moving equipment for fun or thieves taking advantage, putting this stuff up on Craigslist or eBay or whatever. Uh, no, it is actually a, a very large simmering dispute going on in the North Shoe Swap area. And there are people who have stuck around to try and save their homes in the kind of Scotch Creek, uh, Lee Creek, uh, Salista area which is known as the Bush Creek Fire. And it dates back to, we just heard on the news update there about this controlled burn that BC Wildfire Service did on Thursday. The winds are picking up. They're trying to prevent what was called the Lower East Adams Fire from spreading. So they, they burn uh, a line. And winds pick up to 40 kilometers an hour. BC Wildfire Service says they were successful and they saved homes with this burn. But the locals feel like they botched it. And it merged the two fires, the, the Bush Creek fire um, and then this kind of uh, Lower East Adams fire. And it rushed into areas and burned down homes. So you got this distrust and this kind of anger and then people wanting to stay and fight it. And then leading to this sort of um, odd, I thought, uh, kind of a bit strong uh, statement from the province that all of this was somehow theft and uh, and. Uh, mischief when it looks like there's there's a lot more to the story. It, it certainly does. And it reminded me a, as well of wildfires that we've had in the past. And I think it was the Monte Creek fire either last year or the year before. And, and a similar scenario where residents didn't feel like the firefighting efforts and not to say anything about the, the firefighting efforts of what fire crews are dealing with with these fires right now. But in that case, residents didn't feel like they were attacking it the way they should. Uh, they said that because they lived there and they'd lived there all of their lives, they knew better and they stayed behind 
line to save their homes. But that same kind of scenario, on the one hand, uh, emergency officials are telling people you need to leave. And uh, I think you're always going to have some number of residents who say, absolutely not, we're staying and we're going to do this. And like you said, um, questions about uh, if, if their area, obviously you think your home is, is the most important area and you want that saved, but uh, people thinking that maybe they're not the priority. It, it, you're absolutely right. It, it happens every firefighting year. Uh, and I think, you know, the circumstances vary kind of widely. There are points on on both sides, but there is also, a, a you know, an order, uh, an ev- evacuation order that people are supposed to follow. In this case, what made it really interesting is the premier praised part of the efforts because what happened is um, BC Wildfire Service set up a bunch of sprinklers with diesel generators uh, and pumps uh, just kind of on the verge Friday night when everything is going uh, awful everywhere. And they leave because the evacuation order is under effect. And some of these people have boats. Uh, they're on the shoe swap. They can get up into the north area and then and then escape uh, quickly on the, on the lake. So they go up and there's a businessman who puts $10,000 of his own diesel into the generators to keep them running for hours to save who knows how many homes. And the premier praised that in his briefing yesterday saying this is the real community spirit we need at the same time as you know and not mentioning these people by name but at the same time just slagging the rest of them uh in the briefing and you know the people that are there there's a great story in kamloops this week uh interviewing some of them saying like they are spending three solid days without sleep they're running around some of them are firefighters themselves they are running out of supplies food water laundry they have friends and the other parts of the the lake who are trying to run them supplies and the RCMP are stopping them saying there's checkpoints and evacuation orders. You can't do this. And you have this sort of, um, you know, kind of treatment uh, of them as these uh, sort of rogue, uh, you know, uh, folks who need to be prevented uh, from the area when, you know, there is an evacuation order, but they are out there fighting fires where they don't see wildfire service doing it and that tension comes up again and again every year the the wildfire service describes it as putting their people at risk because eventually it might have to help evacuate those who stay behind those who stay behind say it's saving their homes and you know that it's a it's much more complex than the way the government uh, and the ministers and the wildfire service described it yesterday. Continuing now with The View from Victoria with Rob Shaw, political correspondent with Czech News. Uh, Rob, we were talking about people who have stayed behind and uh, you mentioned that convoy of of people in boats trying to get supplies to others and we're going to check in with one of the reporters on the ground there a bit later on as well. But I'm curious now uh, your thoughts or, or what we know about the state of emergency and the travel ban slash order and confusion about that. Yeah, you know, we talked about this yesterday, how it's kind of a little bit like COVID when they put in different bands and people come up with different permutations of how this might work. Well, you know, what if it's my basement suite and I'm renting it on Airbnb? Those kind of wrinkles are coming in. But there there was and has been since Saturday this order to restrict travel to communities and restrict the use of hotels and motel rooms. And so it stands right now as the government is urging you not to go into the Okanagan or into the shoe swap area for tourism, family trips are fun. If you've got a high uh, vacation planned or visiting family, don't do it. They want to keep highways clear for emergency traffic and aid and responders. If you go by law, uh, you cannot stay in the motels or hotels in Kelowna, West Kelowna, Kamloops, Oliver, Osoyoos, Penticton, and Vernon. 
And the goal is to keep those spaces free for evacuees and firefighters. Now, there is that technical loophole here, which is Airbnbs, which are not covered under the law. The premier admitted this yesterday, but he said, listen, he hopes people still follow this rule. Airbnb owners, he hopes they offer refunds. He hopes they'll pull their listings. We will see if that happens. You know, every disaster, we hear horror stories about people refusing to get refunds from Airbnb. So that around the world. So that's that's an issue. Uh, you know, to, to further kind of clarify or muddy this, depending on how you look at it, uh, originally the government didn't want people to go to the southeast either, but that is situation is getting better. And now the province is saying you can go kind of Revelstoke East now. So that's, you know, uh, Nelson and Creston and Cranbrook and that kind of thing. Uh, the proviso being you need to check fire conditions before you go because a little bit of lightning and a little bit of wind and boom, things change quickly. And so that's the current situation. It's a bit confusing, um, but it is sort of an evolving reality of the orders that came in on Saturday. And with the list as well, and I, I had people emailing me saying, well, but uh, I'm going to this area and it's not on the list, even though it's in the Okanagan or it's close by. Uh, it's And it's not as though they're going to be checking people or, or are they going to be checking people or it's more of a, look, this order's in place, do the right thing and don't go to these places. It depends on where you go. If you end up near the front lines, you're probably going to find an RCMP uh, officer somewhere at a blockade saying you can't come in here. If you're going to a motel or hotel, they have the entire association behind that. So they're going to check when you're you're making your reservation or coming in whether you need to be there and uh, and potentially tell you to leave. So uh, but no, like it's not like. You know, and we saw this in COVID too, where people say, well, am I going to get caught? Like, are you, is there going to be somebody there who stops me or can I do it anyways? That's kind of, once you get to that point, you realize government doesn't have the resources to track every single person in every possible permutation of this. They're asking people to to adhere to the spirit of this in the in the principle of keeping things clear for emergency responders. Yes, you can probably find a loophole to get there with your family and squeeze into somewhere really close and find a hotel room. But you are keeping that hotel room, uh, you know, away from someone who could better use it to fight the fire. So, you know, live with yourself if you <laughs> if you're going to plan on finding a way through uh, that order. And it's also, uh, like you mentioned, even if you're going to one of the areas where the province has said, well, things are looking a little better, so this is okay, but but be mindful, a lightning strike at any moment, there could be fire activity and you could have to evacuate. I mean, do you really want to be going? If you can get a refund and uh, f and follow these rules, leave those rooms open for firefighters and evacuees, do you really want to be going on a big vacation to a place where there's active wildfire fighting and the air is filled with smoke and this is happening? It doesn't really seem like the perfect vacation, does it? No, but it is also a double-edged sword because you do have tourism businesses in, in the Southeast now who are saying, you know, hey, um, we might not survive uh, and we need your help too. So it's kind of, it, I mean, we're in peak holiday seasons. People want the last hurrah before school. Uh, businesses are there, but it is, it is really, you know, um, it is really a bit of a guessing game here day to day on how the fires are going to go and how they're going to expand. And so it, it adds that uncertainty to your, your holiday plans. Do you think it's adding to the confusion? And I get that he's the premier, but is it adding to the confusion that on the one hand, people are being told don't go to the Okanagan. And then we hear that the premier is going to be going to that exact space. 
I don't know. This is always a, a debate. Every time there's a disaster of some point, when do the politicians arrive? When is it appropriate? When are they taking, um, you know, uh, key officials away from fighting the disaster or, or helping people to do photo ops? And we saw the NDP in opposition. They used to complain about this a lot. The premier shouldn't go to uh, these type of things because it wastes everybody's time. I think they were wrong in opposition about a lot of things, actually. And, and it's probably the right call at some point to have whether you're the president or the prime minister or the premier or the head of whatever state or government you are to go to a disaster zone and talk to people and hear some stories to the extent you can of where the system's failing, like in North Shuswap, try to get a sense of what's happening and push your officials. And we know the premier is going to go into the Shuswap area and into Kelowna if he can get into them today. Uh, we know he's going to try to talk to some of those frontline people and the emergency responders and thank them. There's a bit of, much like the state of emergency we talked about yesterday, a bit of a sense that it shows the province is doing everything it can, that that the leaders come and, and tour around. But that's that other flip side of not wanting to show people a visual of, of them doing something touristy uh, and also tying up resources. I, I think it's the right idea and probably the right timing. Uh, we'll see how it goes today, though, because, um, you know, as we were talking about, things change very quickly. Very, very true. Uh, well, we'll leave it there. And uh, Rob, I look forward to uh, being on the other side of this and talking more about this on the show tomorrow. Thank you so much. OK, take care. This is Mornings with Simi. We're taking a look at something that has an impact on everybody, sleep. While most Canadians prioritize getting everything their child needs for the classroom, sleep is often overlooked as the ultimate study tool for success in school. Well, our contributor, Scott Chance, took the time to speak with Margaret Eaton, national CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, to find out just how important getting the proper amount of sleep is for kids. It's back to school, and uh, I know that this is like a stressful time for everybody, parents, students, all of that type of stuff. And as I think about like the first day back to school, school, it's like that night before going back, I think like nobody sleeps, right? And it's it's funny because sleep is like the most important thing for us and we just seem to take it for granted. Can you talk about that a little bit, how important sleep is for students? Yeah, sleep is just critical for all of us to function both mentally and physically, but it plays a particularly important role in children's growth and development because it's just essential for social, emotional, and mental well-being. And yet, I think you're right, it's hard to get a good night's sleep for all of us, no matter what age you are. And our culture seems to, you know, um, not place a lot of emphasis on the value of sleep. It pushes us to stay up late and get caught up on, I don't know, social media and video and all the things that would distract us from what we really need, which is sleep. Yeah, totally. It's like every morning when the alarm goes off, we swear we're going to go to bed earlier. And then every night when it's bedtime, it's like, oh, just one more episode or just five more minutes or or whatever, whatever it is that's distracting us. So let's talk about for for students, particularly, because I remember like when I was in school, there's so much going on and so much pressure to to be involved in all of those different things and stuff. How as parents can we we um, improve our our kids' sleep schedule? Is there things we can do, like routines that we can help with, or maybe even for teachers and and for students that are listening? How can we improve our sleep routines? 
Yeah, well, um, Sleep Country, who are our sponsors, did a poll that showed that 77% of Canadian children and youth are actually getting good sleep, um, but it means about 23% are not really sleeping very well. Um, and we know that 20% of Canadian children and youth are affected by a mental illness. So it's really important to pay attention to sleep and to try to prioritize sleep in your life for yourself and for your children. Um, so most importantly is creating a bedtime routine. So set a consistent time to go to bed and wake up at the same time every day. And that's tough, especially when you're coming back to school, because a lot of times our bedtimes are not consistent. You know, kids stay up later, especially young people, teenagers. So a few months or sorry, a few weeks before you go back to school is a good time to start putting that routine into place. It's also good to wind down before you get into bed, read a book, have a warm bath or a shower. And if you can, reduce screen time. And we suggest turning off the the screen between half an hour and 45 minutes before you want to turn out your light. Just because it the technology keeps your mind running and active and it really interferes with sleep. Finally, we say set up a good sleep environment. So a relaxing environment is really conducive to falling and staying asleep. So ensure that your child or teen has a comfortable bed and a dark, quiet room and a cool room as well. Temperature makes a difference too. So create a cozy space. I want to come back to what Sleep Country is doing because that's it's a really cool thing. So I'll come back to that in a sec. But I think mm-hmm. I, I'm glad that we're talking about the mental health aspect of this because it's like such a thing now. And I'm so glad that we're aware of it and talking about it and trying to, uh, you know, get a hold of it, do something for not just our kids, but for ourselves and obviously sleep being such a big part and stuff. Can you talk about the difference between just being tired and actually like having your mental health affected? Like what can parents watch for? How can you tell the difference between I'm just feeling tired, I need a better sleep or like I'm starting to feel like not myself? Yeah, that is such a good point, you know, because sleep is important to in maintaining our mental health, but it can also be a symptom that things are going wrong. So, for example, um, children and youth who are not getting enough sleep um, will find that their performance in school is impaired. Um, they'll find that they're waking up groggy. Um, they're falling asleep um, during the day can sometimes be an issue. And you'll also see things like a rise in anxiety uh, amongst kids that aren't getting good sleep. And in fact, if you're not getting enough sleep, it can also be a sign that uh, your child is suffering from anxiety or has some fears. And so opening up a conversation and a dialogue about sleep can also be a means of opening up a conversation about mental health. Um, Something like sleeping too much can also be a symptom of depression. We can see that in teenagers in particular. So teens tend to need a bit more sleep, but if they are um, unable to get to um, get to school, um, unable to do their part-time job, um, if the uh, lack of sleep is starting to interfere with their ability to do their, their daily tasks, then these can all be signs that you need to open up a larger conversation about mental health. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, we are taking a look now at how some students in Kelowna have found a way using technology to help the thousands of evacuees out of their homes currently because of wildfires. Samir Aliyev, founder of Relief Hunt, is joining us on the line now to talk more about this. Good morning to you. 
Good morning, Jill. How's it going? Very, very well. Thanks so much for taking some time. Uh, this is so popular. I just went to check it out, and it uh, a little screen popped up saying because it's so busy, there might be a short wait. Uh, no waits now. I'm looking at this website, but tell us a bit about Relief Hunt and what this does. Sure thing. Sure thing. So uh, after pretty much wildfires displaced many of uh, my friends and I. We pretty much experienced the challenges of evacuating on, on short notices in some places. And like one of the most important things were like uh, uh, evacuating on short notice that we couldn't get to pack a lot of essential stuff like food and important clothing. And many people needed the rides to get out of the evacuation zones. And even after getting rides, we needed, you know, places to stay and accommodation. So we decided to come up with, uh, me and my team decided to come up with Relief Hunt, which basically uh, bridges the gap between wildfire victims in the Okanagan, specifically Kelowna regions, with individuals offering accommodation, transportation, food, and clothes. So that would be like the, the short explanation of the platform. And were you able to just come up with this in, in light of the current wildfire crisis and what we're seeing, or, or were you already working on this? Uh, so we, we were actually we're, we're working on, on another product called Rental Hunt, which, which helps people to, to find rentals. But Relief Hunt is, is something that we decided to come on, on immediate notice as soon as possible. So I, I pretty much told everyone on the team to, to stop doing what they're doing and let's just get on uh, work on, on this. So we decided to just not sleep for two days and hmm. and pull a couple all-nighters and, and bring the platform live. Wow, that's uh, that's commitment to, to, to bring that and to help people. That's uh, that's uh, impressive. Uh, how do you find all of the information? And, and when I, I'm looking on it, so, and like you said, accommodations, food, in, food and clothes, things that people would need. But how do you actually pull uh, those resources and get that information on the website? Sure, that's, that's a great question. So we have people from, from management side of the company, like, like a couple of people would be Aziz or Aman or Bella, who are responsible for um, uh, crawling, like uh, uh, searching through the web, going through all these social platforms, contacting all these places, verifying and making sure that these places are legit, and basically asking some of these people to sign up on their own or uh, creating accounts on their behalf or, or being like the middleman between those, those people and people who apply for it. Because we also have features for people to apply and then for people to select people for their accommodations. So um, uh, we, have, we have a dedicated team taking care of um, uh, all these applications and all these locations. And do people have to register or to go on the website and find all of this information? Do they have to create an account or how does that work? Sure. So uh, to see all the information, it's free. You can you can go check out all the important places or, or food, you know, clothes, rights. But if you if you want to apply for them, you you want to put your we, we will need your email so that in the case that, you know, the person providing the accommodation chooses you or, you know, says that they have a they have a spot for you, then you will be getting a special email with a lot more information on it on how to contact this person and that person will be getting as well to make the communication easier. So I would say seeing is is free and easy and but if if you want to apply for it, it's just email that's required. Just an email address. What kind of response have you had so far? 
so far, we've, we've had great responses. We actually had a lot of traffic going on. We just pushed the code for food and clothing like maybe five or six hours ago based on the feedback that we have received from the community that a lot of people wanted uh, food and clothes uh, uh, around the area. Um, General, general feedback is very positive. I would say we have about, uh, you know, within within 24 hours of launching, we got we got over uh, 300 uh, users trafficked in the in the website. We have over 30 people creating accounts. You know, a bunch of applications going on, and we're expecting a lot of matches to happen today. And is it word of mouth, or how have you been able to let people know about this? Uh, so we've been we've been utilizing a lot of uh, social media, um, which which our team on, on social media side taking care of, and we're also utilizing a lot of u- uh, university resources. There's a lot of Instagram accounts that that uh, people repost or, or share about that um, they also end up um, uh, sharing it on their social media, and the word gets around and people check us out. Hmm. So, so have you been able to put onto uh, Facebook and places, or, or does this count as a Canadian news source? Have you been banned from Facebook? Uh, no, no, we're not. A, we're not really. We haven't been banned from Facebook. We're not necessarily news source. We're kind of a platform that matches these these two these two people, uh, two parties, and we don't really. Um, uh, put it as news. I, I would say the best way for news is, is to is is here is to check out Castanet or, or you know, uh, uh, other you know more reliable places. But this is more for like a like a platform for people to check it out. Well, it's definitely a service that a lot of people are looking for based on the traffic and how popular this is already. Thank you so much, Samir, for joining us, and I hope you've been able to get some sleep after pulling those two all-nighters. Thanks so much, Jill. Yeah, it was, it was a pleasure talking to you. It's, uh, we, we, we will be sleeping soon. We just have a couple more features to push through and then and we're all going to be having some rest. All right, some well-deserved rest indeed. That is Samir Aliyev, founder of Relief Hunt. Again, he and some other students put together this website to help people connect with rooms, rides if they need them, food, clothing, and that website, if you want to check it out, it is reliefhunt.ca. What a great thing. They were able to shift from what they were working on to put together one place for people to share and get all of that information. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now in an emergency situation where up-to-date local information is more important than ever, Facebook's putting corporate profits ahead of people's safety. Inconceivable. That was Justin Trudeau talking about the ongoing ban of Canadian news links on Meta. And we also heard from Premier David Eby. He, too, called out uh, Mark Zuckerberg by name yesterday, saying uh, something along the same lines that he found it was also uh, inconceivable that the ban would stay in place during a state of emergency. So who is to blame here? Well, Jeff Jarvis is a professor of journalism at the City University of of New York, also the director of the Town Knight Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism, and joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Thank you, Jill. We know that the ban was in place. Uh, Then we have the situation in B.C. with our wildfires, a state of emergency, a lot of blame being put on Meta for continuing the ban. Is that fair to blame Meta Meta saying that that Meta is, is doing something wrong by continuing with this ban? Well, let's make clear first that the people who are suffering here are not parties in this dispute. They're the people who are in the communities, especially the First Nations communities, that are suffering damage. And that's a shame. But the responsibility to me lies at the feet of the Canadian government for C-18 legislation that I think was terribly done. They were warned this was going to happen again and again by, by news sites. Uh, it's the result of lobbying from big old news companies that couldn't figure out the Internet, frankly. And now this is the pickle that we're in. Uh, but it was the government C-18 that left no room for negotiation, no leeway to try to make a, a deal work here. And so at the end of the day, what the government's bill is doing is breaking the Internet because it's trying to charge for the privilege of linking, which is the essence of the web. And uh, Google and Facebook are, in my mind, quite within their rights to decide what they choose to link to and not to. And uh, to compel them to carry speech is itself not free speech. Now, that's not to say that we couldn't have some kind of uh, detente here. I think it could occur, but both sides are staying pretty stubborn right now. Is part of the the problem as well, and there are several flaws with Bill C-18, but is it not also that it was unclear if news agencies or platforms were going to be paying for links? There was no actual number. It wasn't clear what that cost would be, if that cost would change. So how would the government have ever thought that a, a company would agree to that? Amen. That's exactly the problem. What I've heard, I watched Google's testimony before the Senate when they got called on the carpet. And a lot of the problem here is there's no cap. It could go anywhere. Problem one. Problem two, a lot of this money is going to go to the bottom lines of the hedge funds who own some of the companies and investors who own some of the other big companies. Um, Problem three is that, again, there was no opportunity for negotiation. Google has been willing to negotiate. But, you know, here's my fear is that between Australia, where Facebook briefly took down links, and now Canada, where Facebook took, took down links to news. Facebook's probably saying, you know, their life is a lot easier without news. News causes controversy. It causes this kind of lobbying. It just, they're better off with parties and puppies again. <laughs> well, and that kind of also uh, points to, to something else that, that uh, looking at the way the Prime Minister of Canada, the way that our Premier in BC have been calling out these companies, you would think that these companies, that this was the only place for people to access news and to access up-to-date information, especially right now in the, in the wildfire situation in BC with the state of emergency. I mean, that's simply not the case. There are many, many ways for people to access access news outside of Facebook. You make such insightful points, and you're, and you're so right. Um, the irony of this is that the publishers insisted that the value lay entirely in their headlines and their content, and how dare you link to us and quote it without paying us. And, the, and they said, your links are valueless. Well, now they're realizing just how valuable the links are, and now they're screaming like stuck pigs. And so we see that there's a market value for this that should be the subject of negotiation, um, but it's not. And the other point you make, which is really valid, is that people know they can go to your station or CBC or the local newspaper directly. We have a web. And then secondly, people can post information without links still on Facebook and Twitter and so on. And so 
I believe that news organizations should be going directly to their users where they are, and rather than just trying to drive traffic back to their sites, to go to your prime minister's point about greed, that's a greedy uh, way to do things. Rather than just saying we're going to share the most important information right here, right now, wherever we are, whatever platform we can, can get you on. That would be a better way to share the news, especially in an emergency. When you you mentioned Australia and uh, and what happened when Meta uh, put to, took links off in Australia for a, 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 an amount of time and then brought them back, did something change there, or is that something you think that Canada could do something similar? No, the, the difference is that in Australia, the law never took effect. Basically, what happened was that before it took effect. The platform said, well, we can negotiate other means, and they got paid, and uh, then the law was never triggered. Now, there's still problems, a lot of problems in Australia. The money is going, I mean, great measure to Rupert Murdoch. Uh, there's no accountability for whether it actually goes to the journalism. Does it just go to Murdoch's bottom line? There are a lot of other issues, but there's at least peace in Australia. In Spain, some years ago, when they were doing something similar to this, Google News pulled out of Spain and news sites there lost about 20% of their traffic for years until they finally met some um, peace recently. So, you know, my bigger fear here is that, uh, again, Facebook could say we really don't need news. Their news was 3 to 4% of their traffic. Uh, Google, I think, has said it's less than 6%. Uh, so at some point, did the platform say, to heck with it? And we heard Jeff Elgie is a wonderful innovator in Canadian journalism at the site Village Media. He's been writing about this on LinkedIn, where he's talking about losing half his traffic. Uh, yet, he's, he, what his hopes is that this is going to force the government to, in one way or another, negotiate to, to, to amend the C-18, to try to fix this in regulation, to do something so that people and parties can come together and figure this out. Well, hopefully that is something that happens in the near future. Uh, Professor Jeff Jarvis, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Taking a look at what is happening in the Shuswap region of the province and some hope last night as there was some rain in that area. But there is still a lot of confusion and this is about evacuees, about some homes that are cut off from the rest of the community and growing frustration with the lack of supplies and what some residents say is a lack of communication. Alyssa Carpenter is a reporter with Global Calgary and is joining us on the line now with the very latest. Alyssa, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Jill, for having me. So what's the situation there uh, now? I understand a bit of hope, a bit of a change in the weather. How are things looking? Yeah, absolutely. It rained a little bit overnight and, um, you know, enough to sort of wet the road and cool things off. Not a big downpour, not enough that it's going to douse these fires, but it certainly has cleared out the sky that means better visibility. That means they can get water bombers in the air, hopefully, because the visibility has improved. Uh, it's easier to, to see and breathe today. It doesn't taste and, and smell smoky like it has in the past few days. And it's also doing a lot, I think, just to lift people's spirits to see that a little bit of rain has fallen. Maybe there's a reprieve on the way. And when you talk about lifting their spirits, I understand that there are some residents who are talking about feeling a bit abandoned. And we've also been seeing that Good Samaritan convoy trying to get supplies to people, uh, a few hiccups there. What's happening with that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we have been hearing for days, probably the last four or five days since I arrived here, that people particularly uh, in North Shushwap are feeling abandoned by authorities. They feel like, um, you know, there are a lot of wildland firefighters on that fire, but not in these specific small communities, Engelmont, Scotch Creek, Lee Creek, for example. And so uh, just in the last few days, Engelmont has lost uh, its water treatment plant. They need potable water. They're not on an alert zone, so they are actually allowed to come and go, but there are so many roadblocks in between the communities, they really can't get out by car to get supplies. So yesterday there was this huge mobilization across the lake in Blind Bay uh, of private boats who said, if you get the supplies to us, we'll take them across the water to Anglemont. Uh, Cisco Foods donated a truck full of goods that was to arrive, and about 15 minutes before it was arrived at the muster point to be loaded onto the boat, the RCMP came and said, I'm sorry, that truck is not coming. It was diverted, uh, eventually ended up in Vernon, and those donations that were supposed to go for Shushwap residents ended up going to Okanagan evacuees. Which I'm, I'm guessing the, the Samaritans and those that were organizing the convoy and the residents who are running out of things like diesel and drinking water, uh, that was not what they were looking forward to. No, it was a disappointing setback. We know that a number of people got in their own boats and said, hey, we're taking water across anyway. We do know of uh, two boats at least that were pulled off the water and picketed for disobeying orders. The reason they couldn't do it by boat was because uh, that means you can't put water bombers up if the skies were to clear out. Now, in this case, throughout that entire time, it was too smoky to have sent up uh, aircraft anyway. So they really felt like, you know, we were just trying to mobilize and do something as a community and getting pushback from uh, those making the rules and those who unfortunately were just enforcing them and had to be the bearer of bad news. Hmm. Uh, tense uh, situation, stressful, I'm sure, for everybody. And uh, Alyssa, I understand, too, uh, this is also the area, the Bush Creek East Wildfire, the Lower East Adams Lake Fire, um, the, the kind of combined into that one fire. Uh, what's the situation with, with sprinklers that are either being stolen or moved and the issue with that? Yeah, we have heard from BC Wildfire Service as well as local uh, that that is happening. Now, it's it's less likely that these are being stolen as in, uh, you know, just theft of property and more likely that someone sees them sitting there not being used and thinks, I can put a sprinkler on my neighbor's roof, for example. I can put a sprinkler on my own home or on the driveway. Uh, the problem is that they, those are often strategically placed, according to BC Wildfire Service, so that they need quick access, they can get to the next set of equipment, tools, whatever. So if somebody comes along, even though it looks abandoned, they use it, uh, and then it doesn't go back where it came from, then, then those firefighters you know, are hampered in their efforts to fight the fire and get these people back into their homes. On the other hand, when we talk to residents, they say, look, there's a hose sitting there, and I'm watching my neighbor's house burn. What would you do? You'd pick up the hose. And you'd spray it. So uh, that one's causing some tension. Uh, BC Wildfire Service called it theft. I would, I would say from what I've seen on the ground here, they were more like borrowed than stolen. And have there been uh, properties lost in that area? Or, or do residents know kind of the numbers or, or the damage at this point? Yeah, we've been told widespread devastation by uh, the ministry 
and by BC Wildfire Services. They haven't given us any exact numbers yet, just like the situation in the Okanagan. Until these fires are under control, then they'll be able to go in and sort of assess the damages. But right now, it still remains an active situation and kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation. Alyssa Carpenter, thank you so much. I know you're very busy uh, getting uh, to the bottom of all of this. Uh, so thank you so much for your time this morning. You, you bet, Jill. Thanks so much. That is Alyssa Carpenter, Global News Calgary reporter. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, we are taking a look now at something that happened about 65 years ago. This was a significant non-nuclear explosion. It destroyed something called Ripple Rock in Seymour Narrows, but not before Ripple Rock caused a lot of destruction. Well, Vince Shuley is joining us now. Vince Shuley is a freelance journalist. He specializes in outdoor recreation. Vince, thank you so much much for being with us. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, hard to believe it's been 65 years. Before we get into the explosion and how significant that was, can you talk a little bit about Ripple Rock and what it was that uh, Ripple Rock did, how it made that passage so treacherous? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned it was uh, situated in, in Seymour Narrows, and that's a, a five-kilometer stretch of Discovery Passage just north of Campbell River there. And, uh, and in Seymour Narrows, there was Ripple Rock was this massive underwater mountain, and it had two peaks, uh, and at low tide, these peaks would just hover a little bit below the surface. Um, and what this did is it created these very dangerous eddies, um, and that made navigation by boat uh, through that passage very, very difficult. And it was, um, it was Captain George Vancouver himself who, who described that passage as one of the vilest stretches of water in the world, actually. And it did create a lot of damage, did it not? Or sink a lot of, of ships, of uh, captains and such that were unaware that at low tide just how dangerous it was. Yeah, that's right. It, uh, it uh, uh, took its first victim in 1875. Uh, it was, that was an old side wheel steam paddler. And, uh, and between 1875 and, and, and when they removed the rock, uh, 114 people lost their lives. And, uh, and that was uh, through like over 100 vessels of all, all kinds of sizes. Hmm. And so do we know why uh, there w- it wasn't better known uh, in that after a few vessels were lost and we saw that uh, this, this part of the Narrows was so dangerous, it seems like word didn't really get out. Uh, yeah, the, in in the early 1930s, uh, the government sort of realized that they had to do something. Um, but you know, taking years to to get the process uh, started and, and authorized, it wasn't until uh, 1942 actually that they were given the the green light. Um, and there there was lots of opposition as well. Um, some of the locals there thought Ripple Rock would be the perfect uh, sort of a foundation for a railway bridge over to the mainland. Of course, that never happened. Uh, so, yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't until the 40s that they actually um, started making moves on, on removing it. And I understand the initial attempts at doing that were not, uh, did not go all that well. No, uh, they they attempted first with these uh, floating drill barges um, and basically tried to, to anchor these barges down with like massive concrete weights um 
you know, connected to steel cables. Uh, and then they basically tried to, from this drill barge, drill into the top of the rock uh, and then feed in explosives and then just blow it up bit by bit. And uh, that didn't work because the water was too rough. Um, and they tried again with, uh, with the floating barge by suspending cables across the entirety of Seymour Narrows. Um, but again, the, the water was too rough, so they had to ad- abandon the, uh, the drill barge idea. And uh, so they abandoned that idea. They realized that wasn't going to work. But uh, I would imagine these uh, rocks, this underwater mountain was still causing a lot of troubles. So at what point did they start talking about or discussing the idea of an explosion? Um, Yeah, well, the Canadian National Research Council got involved after after those two uh, drill barge attempts that the council started putting its minds together and they were they were thinking okay we're, we're trying it from the top but we're at the mercy of these waters but maybe if we came at it from underneath uh, we wouldn't have to deal with with those uh, turbulent waters so um, they basically um, started on nearby Maud Island which is like a tiny island off the, off the west coast of Quadra and, uh, and they sunk a shaft 174 meters deep, like straight, uh, straight down on that island. And then they were able to tunnel across uh, Seymour Narrows to the base of Ripple Rock, 762 meters. Um, and then they dug two 91-meter vertical shafts up into the heart of Ripple Rock. And this took about, I think, about two years or so, uh, 75 men working in three shifts around the clock. Um, you know, it was a it was a very big uh, operation. Hmm. That just uh, and and again, thinking that this was happening 65 years ago, just uh, what uh, a large operation to have take place. So uh, it finally got to the point where the explosion was going to to take place. I understand, too, that not a huge surprise. There were concerns about sea life in the area and what kind of an effect this would have on not only that, but uh, surrounding populations and and a lot of concerns. Yeah, well, uh, they were worried that uh, Campbell River was going to be completely uh, flattened from this, um, which was, uh, you know... Maybe a bit of hysteria, I don't know. Uh, but this was, uh, people had never seen an, an explosion like this, uh, especially not in Canada and especially not in Campbell River. So uh, I think the concerns were validated at the time. Um, but, they, you know, they did tell all the surrounding communities, open your windows because the shock blast is, uh, you know, might break them. Um, there were concerns over, you know, sea life. As, as well, um, apparently all of the sea mammals in the area that were spotted before the blast were accounted for after the blast. I can't speak for the accuracy of that uh, 65 years ago. Um, but one of the big uh, things they were worried about was causing a uh, tsunami that would reach as far as uh, the coast of Japan. And uh, I, don't think, I don't think the tsunami quite made it out of the harbour. I think it got to about seven seven and a half meters high and then dissipated rather quick. Hmm. But even the fact that there was a tsunami created by this is pretty impressive. Yeah, well, it, it, it was a, a lot, uh, a lot of explosives uh, went into the heart of Ripple Rock because the, uh, the investment that they made into this tunneling, they, um, they spent uh, you know, a lot of money and resources and manpower and risk getting it in there. So they wanted to make sure that they only had to blow it up once. 
And was it a success then as far as it blew up what they wanted? And is it just now uh, the the remnants of Ripple Rock kind of sit on the ocean floor or, or what was kind of the, the, the aftermath of this? Um, it, it, it threw up, um, you know, hundreds of tons of, of water and, and rock in, into the air. So, um, you know, quite a bit of it, um, you know, I'm sure sits at the bottom of, of Simo Narrows as uh, debris, but a lot of it would have been vaporized as well. Um, in the explosion and uh you know in the effect today is basically these uh, these two underwater peaks of, of ripple rock have um have been cut down by by somewhere between like 30 to 40 meters so now you can you know these big alaskan cruise ships that uh that cruise through a discovery passage can go at uh, but they still go at high tide you know they don't risk it at low tide but uh the the size of vessels that can safely navigate through there is uh, is quite large now uh, is it still considered a, a pretty big feat as far as even though it was 65 years ago this it's not like this is something that we've seen repeats of this no, absolutely. It's it's quite a it's quite a unique engineering uh, challenge, and um, and you know, like all engineering challenges, it, it takes a few goes to to figure out how to how to best uh, tackle it. Um, uh, but I, I think it's a great example of like minds coming together, um, and uh, you know, and accomplishing something that was like very very difficult and uh, for for so many decades people didn't know how to how to tackle this problem and, and how to stop uh, how to stop ripple rock sinking ships but it had experts coming from as far as uh, as far as the UK who were like atomic explosion experts they came over to monitor the effects of uh, this blast so uh, it wasn't just the first um, you know televised live event by the CBC it, it had a lot of international attention to it as well well, it is a very uh, interesting story, again, uh, 65 years ago. Vince Shuley, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you very much.